Gold gets run over and one of the world's largest lithium producers acquires yet more projects. Welcome to Kitco Roundtable. I'm your host, Michael McRae. Editor Niels Christensen is in. Hi, Niels. Hello. Happy weekend, everybody. Kitco correspondent Paul Harris. Hi, Paul. Hey, how's everyone? There is a sharp uptick in demand for ESG services. And what's fascinating about the sector is the wide range of business models being adopted to meet the demand. With us this week is the founder of Digby, Jamie Strauss. Jamie, welcome to Kitco. Hi there, Michael, and hi there, everyone else. Nice to be with you. You describe Digby as a software as a service for ESG. Explain. So I would say uh, it's a data uh, ESG disclosure platform and research uh, platform. Uh, originally set up to mitigate risk in the industry and to get better outcomes uh, for the corporates as well as the uh, underlying investors. But it's the ESG which is really kind of taking foot at the moment uh, in, in order to address the problems uh, both with the miners as well as also in terms of assessing that from the investor point of view. I've heard your talks. You've had uh, fascinating. Uh, you've had fascinating insights uh, just regarding what are happening in the junior space in terms of actually finding models that work on ESG, and then of course also all of the work that has been done on the miners. There's also a large financial. There's kind of a large carrot for people that are able to do well on the ESG side. We're going to talk about it more later in the podcast, but first we have to turn to Niels. What was the gold's big drop this week, Niels? The Fed. That's all you got to say is the Fed. I could spend like the next hour talking about this. This, I, I it's like okay. I understand that gold sold off. You know, I I looked at the report as soon as I actually as soon as I saw that they upgraded their economic forecast to seven percent uh, GDP growth for this year. I was like, okay, gold's going to sell off. This is you know this is sort of setting it up. And then I saw the economic uh, the uh, the uh, Interest rate projections, zero point six percent by twenty twenty three. And I'm like, okay, gold's going to sell off. And then um, here we are. We're down a uh, hundred bucks on the week. And I'm just, I, I don't really understand it. Yes, gold should have sold off, and, and technically I do. Um, you know, we broke through some some important uh, technical support levels uh, around eighteen fifty and and then eighteen hundred. Um, but it just, it feels like, it just, it feels like, uh, and, and people that I've talked to, this is unsustainable panic. Like it just, it doesn't make sense if, you know, we're, we're, we're pricing in a lower gold price based on a hypothetical forecast two years from now. Um, gold should be a lot more resilient. Gold and silver should be a lot, a lot more resilient than that. But um, here we are. Uh, Paul, I've got two sort of comments for that. Uh, you know, in my sort of years observing gold, wh whatever happens, gold's first reaction seems to be negative and selling off. Even if it's the best, you know, even if a world war broke out, gold would go down first before it started really going up. Um, and also, this struck me as being perhaps you know a bit of a paper tiger. You know, to what extent can the, the Fed can say what it likes, but in reality, can it? raise interest rates. I did a bit of number crunching, and excuse me if uh, this isn't very accurate, but um, the US is about $28 trillion. The US national debt is about $28 trillion. The interest payment on that this year is sorry, $378 billion. That's projected to increase to $800 billion by 2029, which would make interest payments the US's third largest budgetary items. So in that scenario, 
just a 25% basis point in interest rates would add another $70 billion a year to what the Fed has, to, uh, the US has to pay in interest. How, how can it raise interest rates? I, I agree. And, and we're not even considering the fact that, you know, President Joe Biden want, is, is continues to push the $6 trillion uh, uh, spending proposal. Um, you know, like there's just there's spending, you know, it, it's not going to stop. And, you know, you're right. The, the Fed just they can't they can't, you know, effectively raise interest rates because they just, they, you know, the government needs low interest rates to be able to continue to to borrow and, and deficit spend. Jamie. Well, I mean, I think that last point is just the whole point. I'm not going to beat Paul on his uh, number crunching, uh, but I mean, everywhere you look, there's inflation. And isn't it the relative speed with which you can raise interest rates uh, to keep inflation down? Or arguably, the governments want inflation anyway, uh, because of the debt everybody's got into in the course of the last 18 months. Um, but the, the, the speed of inflation is just taking off. And I mean, it's everywhere over in this country. You know, you're looking at house prices, you're looking at oil price, obviously, globally. You're looking at things, go, wage prices uh, or wage inflation is beginning to emerge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when that begins to take off, you know that unless they unless they snap at it and they close it, which I think they did in around 2010, wasn't it? 2009. And they did manage to close it off. But this time it's going to be very difficult to do that. Uh, and certainly on a relative basis, I just can't see them increasing interest rates as quick as inflation taking it. Well, and, and not only government debt, but also consumer debt as well. You know, how many people are buying mortgages? How many people are buying um, cars, student loan debt? Um, all of these are going to be, you know, all of these are based on on interest rates. And, and if they go up, then, you know, all of a sudden that, that house that you overbought in 2020 um, you're now, you know, upside down and underwater because uh, interest rates are are going are, are going higher. Uh, I just I I don't see it. Um, I do think they should taper. Um, I you know like th- this kind of makes sense. You know like when we're you know everybody's sort of expecting that uh, by the end of the year that makes sense. But um, that doesn't impact real interest rates. And if you look at real interest rates, you know, and that's inflation. Uh, uh, or nominal nominal yields plus inflation, um, they're still extremely negative. And a 50 basis point move two years from now, if inflation is still at 5%, means that real interest rates are still going to be in deep, deep negative territory. Like this is, it, it does feel, so I was talking to uh, George Milling Stanley from uh, State Street Global Advisors on Thursday, just trying to make sense of all of this. And he was like, the first thing he said to me was, this feels like a time to buy. Like you just, you know, and everybody, everybody that I've sort of been talking to, even if they see lower prices in the near term, they're like, you know, I'm just waiting for the dust to settle because I want to, I want to buy this dip. You know, you don't you don't catch a falling knife, but um, hey, you know, you, you you can definitely buy when when the dust settles here. Uh, Neil, so, you know, we've written up a couple of reports. I know you certainly have. And it was uh, from about a month or two months ago where everybody, you know, some of the large financial institutions were saying that, uh, yes, gold was going to take a foot lower. But uh, now we're suddenly talking more about inflation at this point and then the pressure on that. I don't understand. It, it sounds like the reporting that we're doing or what we're reporting on was stating that, uh, yes, gold was going to be soft this year. Well, 
so yeah, like yes, gold. Like so, it depends on who you talk to. I know, um, you know, uh, um, one bank, uh, um, Commerce Bank out of Germany. I mean, they've always been sort of bullish. Um, did a report uh, earlier this week. Uh, OC OC uh, BC from Singapore. They're bearish. They actually think gold is going to go back to uh, fifteen hundred next year. Um, a lot of people. So it's 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 they they figured and and at the start of the year gold struggled because growth was was overwhelming inflation. You know everybody like we were expecting higher prices, but we were expecting strong economic growth to sort of balance out those price pressures. You know if if your if your wage is going up, if you're going back to work, um, you you can afford higher milk prices. You know, that, that's sort of the thought there. So, you know, as the economic recovery sort of progressed, that would, would cancel out inflation. Um, two months ago, you know, we started getting these, these CPI numbers um, back in, in May, it was, uh, or in April, it was uh, four, uh, 4.2%. Um, in May, it hit 5%, you know, highest, um, highest inflation rates since 2008. Um, when those started sort of hitting the market, um, then we started, you know, worrying about this this inflation threat, and it's not and and economic growth is not going to be able to to keep up with inflation. And really, what that means is that is that like real real wages, real money, um, it, it, it weakens, you know. So your your real wealth just weakens in in a rising inflationary environment, and that's and that's sort of what everybody's been jumping on uh, the last two months. Um, coupled with that, though, is that there's thoughts that, you know, the Fed would have to do something. If, if inflation continues to go higher, um, they would have to step in because you can't, you can't have that, that wealth destruction. You can't have this, you know, overheated market just, you know, running rampant. So the Fed would have to step in. Um, I don't necessarily say that. I mean, we saw retail sales um, come in weaker than expected this week. Um, I don't, you know, and and this is only a couple months since uh, Americans got their, you know, their their latest stimulus checks. And, and I was expecting that to sort of go through the spring. It hasn't even that lasted that long. Um, and people are, you know, like they're, they're now worried in, in the U.S. They're now worried about being evicted uh, from their from their homes and and this uh, rent um, uh, um, rent support is not coming from the government fast enough. So it's I I don't think we're out of the woods yet. This was Powell said it himself. I mean, this was an unprecedented um, economic event into in 2020, and we just we don't know um, uh, how the recovery is going to progress. Um, you know, there are, the, you know, he said there's no models for for this. Um, and he even actually said, and this is why this is why the, the panic selling just didn't really fit with me. He actually said that, you know, the economic, the, 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 the forecast should be taken with a big grain of salt. Um, but, you know, markets are just, you know, they were focused on uh, higher inflation and interest rates uh, going up. And that's that's all they focus on. They're not really focusing on. The timeline, but you know, I think we do need to put it into perspective that it's two years from now. You know, a lot of things can change in two years. 
We should uh, turn to the other uh, story, which was uh, putting pressures on metals, and uh, that was China and its metal reserves. What's going on there, Niels? Well, this was really interesting, too. So China basically came out and said um, they don't want to be subject to global uh, uh, commodity prices. Um, so they basically uh, they said they're going to uh, release reserves, their supplies and strategic reserves of uh, copper, uh, zinc, aluminum, uh, some other metals and stuff like that. Um, and that just that dropped copper uh, like a stone. It fell through a really uh, 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 key support at uh, 450 a pound. Um, but again, like this is this this was really interesting talking to some some commodity analysts. Um, the interesting thing about the strategic reserves is once they're depleted, China has to refill those. So, I mean, like all they're doing is creating short-term weakness, but like you look at copper, um, I think they're, they're setting themselves up for really long-term pain because, you know, as soon as they start buying and as soon as they start replenishing those reserves, um, is copper supply, you know, what's copper supply going to look like in three years? A lot of people are saying that this, this supply crunch, this imbalance that we see in the copper market is going to last a lot longer than, in three years, like it just, it's going to take so much longer to get supply into the market. Um, so, you know, like they, we could, they could be setting themselves up for much, buying at much higher prices for these, for these reserves. So short term, yeah, this is, this is, you know, there's some, there's some pain for speculators, but man, it's, you know, for some people it's, it's a long-term uh, strategic buy. We'll get into it, uh, but uh, there has, uh, just uh, talking about on the supply side, just to take the other side, there's been two massive copper mines that have come on uh, stream this um uh, come on and stream uh, this uh, spring, summer right now. And then uh, we'll be talking about the opening of the uh, Serbian mine. Uh, and then also what is uh, happening at uh, DRC, obviously with Ivanhoe Mining's uh, Kamoa uh, Kakulua. Uh, Paul. And one thing I liked about this uh, news item was the fact it's almost like coming full circle because a couple of years ago, it's the Western world complaining about they don't want to be subject to Chinese price um, setting for things like rare earths. And now the Chinese are feeling it too. <laughs> uh, Paul, there's been a messy resolution to an election in Peru. Reuters reports on Tuesday that Pedro Castillo claimed a victory in the presidential election. Castillo ended the count 44,058 votes ahead of Keiko Fujimori. The result of the June 6th ballot has not been formally announced by electoral authorities. Paul, uh, Peru is a hugely important mining jurisdiction. Is Castillo going to have an impact upon the resource sector? Um, I, I read a lot about this the past couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I think the final analysis, it will have some impact, but, um, you know, it will be measured, it will be limited. Um, the country's divided 50-50. He doesn't have, he's far from having any kind of uh, majority in Congress. Um, so his ability to advance a very aggressive left-wing agenda, that's going to be very, very muted. Uh, he may be able to sort of increase or put in some extra taxes, but things like constitutional reform, um, nationalization, or getting state participation in mining companies, I think is, is very far-fetched. I think um, how the mining sector will be affected depends upon where a company or project is on the Lausanne curve. If you're already in production, you've already sunk in your capital, yeah, you may pay a bit more tax, but to a greater or less extent, business as usual. If you're a developer, that's the, the, the part of the curve I think is potentially going to be hit most because um, are you going to look to develop a mine when you've got an uncertain five years ahead of you? Are you going to be able to finance that? Um, your cost of capital is probably going to go up. Uh, Moody's have already uh, downgraded Peru to a certain extent, so cost of capital will go up. 
If you're an early stage explorer, um, it's probably not going to affect you because you're probably looking at five to 10 years of exploration before you get a project to the stage where you're going to finance. However, um, it may be more difficult to raise equity because the, it may just not be there. That said, um, this, this past week, um, it's been curious that I've uh, become aware of five new, sorry, three new silver junior explorers in Peru, uh, tier one silver, Palomina and Mantaro silver. So um, early stage explorers looking beyond uh, beyond the Castillo government by, by the looks of things. So I think to, to a great extent, there'll be, you know, it will be business as usual, but with some changes and a bit more expensive. Well, you need those silver as a hedge uh, from those socialist governments. Uh, Paul, let's uh, turn to uh, the uh, what you noted as the uh, highlights uh, through the week. Can you first tell us about Tombill and its hard rock extension? Yes, uh, Tombill Mines is a company that many people probably haven't heard of, but they're bang slap right next door to Hard Rock, which is uh, the project that Equinox Gold um, basically acquired from Premier Gold Mines early this year. Um, the company reported an intercept of 13.3 meters grading 6.23 grams per ton, uh, down dip uh, 150 kilometers west of Hard Rock's property boundary. Um, that hole was uh, over a kilometer deep. So uh, yes, they do have the extension there, good hole for them, but um, they've got a lot of work to do to uh, perhaps try and entice Equinox to, to come and take them out. Hard Rock hosts uh, 5.5 million ounces, and pretty much that's uh, right up there for Equinox in terms of one of its uh, next development projects. Adventus hits uh, nine meters at 26.78% uh, uh, copper equivalent at El Domo. Yes, um, copper is obviously a very topical um, subject and metal this year, and Adventus is uh, a junior explorer in in Ecuador that a lot of people haven't heard of, but they've been hitting some really great uh, grades with drilling there. Uh, infield drilling recently, they just reported nine meters, grading 3.25% copper, 19 grams a ton gold, 30% zinc, 242 grams of silver, and some lead thrown in for 26.78% copper equivalent. El Domo is a volcanic massive sulfide project. The company's in the process of completing a feasibility study. I think they're looking at that in October uh, for what they think will be around a $200 million uh, CapEx development project. Jamie. I would, yeah, I just add that I'm actually on the board of Altius Minerals, which seeded uh, Alt, uh, Adventus in the first place and listed it. Um, and I just want to say that the team there is um, simply outstanding. I mean, they have consistently just continued to get their head down uh, uh, and deliver this. You know, they identified the whole Ecuadorian thing. They they identified the right partners to go in. They identified uh, actually the ESG approach that they were going to take um, and, and really go after that with their partners um, down there. And I, I have to take my hat off to them. They've continued to under, uh, under-promise and outperform. Uh, so I take my hats off to them. Just to, to follow up on, on that comment from Jamie, um, the, uh, they're looking at uh, producing around 20,000, 25,000 tons per year of copper equivalent, which is, let's say, 100, 125,000 ounces a year gold equivalent. They're going to have a, a negative cash cost of around uh, over a dollar per pound of copper. They're going to throw off uh, something like $150 million a year of free cash flow for what is relatively a relatively small company. So the, the economics on that are just, just bonkers. Yeah. Tell us about uh, Cisco's uh, Golden Bear discovery near Windfall, Paul. 
Yes, um, Cisco has got a, a long history of putting out some very, very big drill results from its Windfall project. Now they've announced a new discovery, which they've called Golden Bear. And this is just uh, one kilometer north of Windfall. So their discovery hole returns 6.7 meters, grading 27.4 grams uh, per tonne of gold. Um, and so that's well within the footprint of where they're going to build out the Windfield mine and Mike milling facility. So um, it looks like they're going to be able to extend continue to extend the, the mine well, well into the future. Niels. I just, can, can we start taking bets about how big windfall is going to get? Like, you know, it's just every time I just like, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Ganfeng, the uh, giant uh, Chinese lithium company does more deals. Australian lithium miner Fire Finch said on Wednesday, it signed a binding deal with China's Ganfeng Lithium to jointly develop and operate its uh, Gulmani project in Mali, sending Fire Finch's shares soaring to 25% or 25% higher. Sorry. Ganfeng will make cash investments of $130 million for a 50% stake in joint venture company for lithium project. That according to, Roy- that according to reporting by Reuters. Paul. I think that's uh, very timely. This week, Fitch uh, did a webinar looking at the lithium space and a couple of things that uh, really stood out. I've been following lithium for a long time, 20 years, and a couple of things that really stood out. In, in their database, they said, I think they had 124 projects in but 101 different companies. So very, very fragmented sector. <clears throat> only five companies, I think they said, have more than two projects, uh, and there's only about five, uh, so only five big companies there. So they say there's a lot of consolidation is needed in, in, in that space. Um, and because there's a, a plethora of junior explorers there, um, they said you know, there's a lot of execution risk on the perceived pipeline of lithium projects. Um, so they're thinking you know, these projects coming online isn't going to be as smooth as perhaps some people might think because they're small juniors. They don't necessarily have the experience, the financial resources, the technical resources to overcome the challenges of developing what is effectively chemical projects rather than mining projects. Uh, Jamie, I should bring you in. Uh, we are talking about uh, your company that you founded, uh, Digby, but you also have uh, some involvement in uh, lithium. And uh, maybe uh, we could hear your thoughts on uh, talking about that fragmentation that Paul mentioned. Sure. Yeah, I'm on I'm, I'm on the board of uh, Bacanora, which is currently uh, um, uh, being uh, taken over or, or, or a potential recommendation for a takeover under the UK takeover panel structure. Uh, so I can't talk on that specifically, but I think it was interesting what Paul was saying. Uh, I, I, I think there's an interesting correlation to the uranium industry back in the last cycle. Uh, I was very involved in the uranium industry between 2003 and 2009, um, and really was probably the reason I went to BMO actually in, in, in 2007. Um, and there is an oligopoly uh, in uranium, there is an oligopoly to some degree currently in lithium. And uh, sure, we need new deposits. Uh, but I think Paul's comment is, you know, these are chemical products uh, or projects at the end of the day. Uh, the mining is, to all intents and purposes, very simple in most cases. Um, it's not really a mining thing. It's how do you get the metallurgy to work? And, and if you look at Gang Feng and their knowledge, and uh, the, the, the original owners or the original people who set up Gangfang are metallurgists. They're very hands-on people, uh, and they really understand their, their projects. And I, I, it's quite clear to me that what they want to do is to, to be able to deliver enough product in from, say, 2023 onwards uh, to be able to meet the demand that is clearly going to come. I was talking yesterday to a, 
a senior uh, uh, member of one of the uh, large commercial banks in Europe, uh, lending into the uh, lending into the mining space, and uh, he was particularly highlighting the aggressive nature with which they are taking uh, their lending into the battery metal space, and particularly lithium, uh, and to some extent cobalt. But they can find no product available to do that to. There is a very there is a dearth of quality products to be able to come through. So. Paul, I agree with you with the total number of these things, but where they are in that life cycle to be able to get into production and most importantly, with the management and operational skill in order to do so without all of that risk, uh, which our industry obviously bears all the time, is a, is a real issue. So uh, I, I can see where Gang Feng's going and I agree with Paul, there does need to be consolidation in general within the industry, particularly if they want to maintain uh, pricing, uh, uh, controller pricing, as in potash, or uh, ultimately, I suppose, uh, uh, uranium, even though it got a little bit out of hand for a while. Paul? I think that uh, uh, comparison with uranium could be, you know, is very interesting. And I'd like to sort of ask you this question. You know, this year we've seen in the uranium space, we've seen juniors taking advantage of the low uranium prices to buy physical uranium, expecting the price to go up in the future, and being able to use that physical uranium perhaps as collateral to, to get lower cost of finance to, to eventually build their, their, their mines. Um, do you see something like that being possible in the lithium space, i.e. the lithium juniors taking advantage of price dips now to buy physical lithium, expecting the price to go up in future years to then use that as collateral or as a means of financing their operations? I think it's a hypothetical, brilliant idea, but I'm not sure if it would ever happen. I mean, only because, you know, even in a bull market, when does a junior ever have excess cash? Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think just in commodities generally, it would be wonderful. And I actually see ESG, frankly, as a means to smooth the commodity cycle, uh, which is driven by price. Um, but I can't, I'd love to think that your hypothetical one would actually work. Um, but I'm struggling to, I'm struggling to get my head around how it would effectively ultimately happen in practice. Okay, thank you. Uh, Jamie, that was a terrific segue because we wanted to talk about uh, other deal making in the energy space. Uh, Paul, can you tell us about Denison and UEX? Yes, um, Denison Mines entered into a binding agreement with UEX to acquire 50% of the JCU exploration, uh, which UEX is purchasing. Um, UEX made a, a lowball offer for JCU um, a couple of months ago. Uh, Denison responded by making it hostile uh, $41 million Canadian bid for them. And now the companies have come together and agreed to, to this deal. Under this deal, Denison Mines, um, the, the purchase price is still going to be $41 million Canadian. Denison Mines will have half of that. UEX will have half of that. So um, Denison is going to basically loan the money to UEX to make the acquisition. Uh, why? Denison Mines, um, sorry, JCU has a 10% interest in the Wheeler River project, which is Denison Mines. Denison has 90% of that. And so through doing this, they're effectively getting a 5% extra control of that, of Wheeler River for $20.5 million, rather than spending $41 million to get a 10% control. So um, a very interesting deal. Um, it's been interesting to see how this particular transaction has played out. Uh, when UEX initially made their offer, uh, for some reason, the, Denison wasn't invited to bid on the asset, even though it's an existing partner. So um, it's good to see how Denison's managed to find a way uh, past that and to, to come to terms with both UEX and uh, JCU. 
So, um, you know, good news there for everybody. Big milestone for Valley and it's Boise Bay. Yes, um, Boise Bay um, produced its the first nickel from, sorry, Valley produced the first nickel from the Boise Bay expansion, uh, which is in Labrador in Canada. Um, and that's part of the transition to an underground mine. Um, so the, 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 the transition there will achieve production of around 40,000 tons a year of nickel in concentrate by 2025 and about uh, 20,000 tons of copper and 2,600 tons of cobalt. Um, always good to see new operations come into production. So uh, congratulations to Valley. Uh, I believe that also triggers the um, cobalt uh, cobalt uh, stream that um, uh, Wheaton uh, Wheaton Metals is uh, getting for itself right now because they were part of the financing for the expansion of Boise Bay. Uh, Jamie, I think that you had some involvement uh, with uh, Boise or indirect and in, indirect involvement. Yeah, actually, through through the uh, uh, being on the board of Altius Minerals, uh, you know, really the first royalty that Altius got was the the original Boise Bay uh, 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 royalty or part of the royalty, um, which Royal Gold has the other share of it now, um, which uh, came from the original geologists who discovered. And, um, you know, it's been a fantastic asset. We had a little bit of a legal problem in between uh, with Vale, and that had to get resolved. But it's what an outstanding asset it is. And it, it keeps on growing. It keeps on getting better. It's got great grades. Uh, and it's uh, and and the operation's been managed extremely well, actually. So uh, we're delighted with that. Thank you very much, Jamie. So Paul, um, I'm just going to have to ask you. We're going to have to go through this quickly so we can leave time for Jamie. But uh, Alamos uh, reports best hit at Island Gold. Yes, Alamos best hole ever at Island Gold. Um, they intercepted 21.3 meters grading, 71.2 grams per ton. Yeah, Yamana adds uh, at uh, Wesemax. It's uh, Globex Properties. Yes, Yamana bought Wasamak, um, I think, earlier this year or last year, and now it's acquired some more land around that from Globex Mining. Um, so expanding their footprint there. Um, Quebec is becoming an increasingly important part of Yamana's portfolio. Wasamak uh, holds reserves of uh, around 1.8 million ounces, so they're very much looking at growing that. And Torex uh, increases uh, indicated resources. Yes, yeah, so Torrex Gold Resources with their Media Luna project in Guerrero, Mexico, uh, announced a 58% increase to their indicated resources there. So it uh, now hosts 20.9 million tons, grading 5.7 grams per ton gold equivalent. Zizian Mining announced on Wednesday that it's entered trial production for its uh, Serbian project. Uh, Zizian acquired the project in 2018 from Nefsun Resources for about $1.4 billion. Lundin Mining tried to acquire Nefsun in a hostile bid, what was topped by the Chinese giant. Uh, Zizian expects to produce around 91,000 tons of copper, once again, 91,000 tons of copper, and 2.5 tons of gold per year. Let's bring back uh, Jamie. Uh, Jamie, we've had on guests offering services in the ESG space. Uh, could you describe uh, from the demand side uh, what you see and what miners are going to need? You did put together, you were a founder of Bigby. What are the miners needing in the ESG space? Uh, yeah, if I could just start off by saying uh, the, the, the traction since we've done this is simply incredible. And I mean, I'm really enthused for this industry as a whole. Uh, uh, this industry is embracing ESG. We know it's had a, a history of doing ESG, social license, call it CSR, whatever. But it's a matter of how can you package that and disclose that and effectively win the hearts and minds of society, for our managers, insurance, whatever it happens to be. And I'm really enthused. The, 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 you can, I can feel the, the, the embracement of it. I should say that 
this started from uh, a chap called Evie Hambro, uh, who runs the BlackRock uh, Natural Resources team, and Mike Barton, who's at Orion, um, reaching out to me uh, to uh, uh, come up with a solution for the junior miners uh, with regards to ESG. And the problem which the junior miners have is what do we disclose, how do we disclose it, and to whom? There is also a problem on the other side of it in terms of the institutions as to a complete lack of standardization and therefore an impossibility to uh, compare and contrast one company against another. There's a myriad of uh, standards out there and that's not helping them either. So how can we effectively bring these two parts together in a straightforward, simple means to allow simple disclosure, increase confidence, increase credibility, and therefore uh, move this industry into a better place, uh, position? You say there's evolving standards. Uh, what uh, could um, if uh, what could a junior provide right now? I mean, what would be the types of uh, simple ESG principles that it would be meeting? And then, you know, what would it be at a stage where instead of just saying that uh, you're doing well, but uh, something that you would have? Um, how would you say that would be quantifiable? For instance, that you could take to investors. Yeah, I mean, I think the standard at the moment for you know, actually any company on the you know in the, in the world, not just in the mining space, is to do a sustainability report. Um, and the sustainability reports, generally speaking, are not standardised. There are some who have gone after a global standard and just literally uh, uh, listed out the lots of zeros of particles of carbon and all the rest of it that come out of it. Uh, you tell me if that's added value or not. I'm sure it will become valuable as people know what's good reporting and not good reporting. But that is the environmental side. And the environmental side is binary. You're either doing the right thing or the wrong thing. You're either moving the, uh, the emissions down. ESG covers a much bigger uh, 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 quantum of topics. I think, in essence, the UN Social Development Goals are what you should look at, 17 uh, uh, Social Development Goals. And it covers, particularly for our industry, the society and the communicate and and the and the, uh, uh, the communities with which uh, these minds typically are aligned to, and and along with that is how do you effectively uh, improve that, mitigate risk, uh, and go forward from there. So a sustainability project when they're not standardised, or a sustainability report when they're not standardised, doesn't really help uh, in a very practical sense. What we need to do is to make sure that there's a standardised. Uh, approach, which is aligned to the global standards, which is endorsed by the uh, leading stakeholders in the industry, which is easy to use, and you get best practice out of that, and it can continue to be assessed on an ongoing basis. Niels, um, I, Jimmy, I actually completely agree with you. Um, you know, and we see a lot of announcements uh, from companies uh, on the environmental side of it. You know, reducing their carbon footprint. Um, you know, introducing solar panels, reducing. Uh, 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 diesel fuel at their, at their, at their sites. Um, what about how, how much of it, how are they, are they putting the energy into, you know, like that green technology into environmental, into the SG side of ESG? Like, are they, are they taking that side seriously as well? Or are they just, is it, is it, because it feels like they're just, it's easier to focus on environmental because like it is binary, you know, like it's, you know, reducing our carbon footprint great headlines, yada, yada, yada. No, I, I think that's a good question. I think, you know, I think the bottom line is, is that, you know, we all know with uh, Mike Bloomberg and Mark Carney and everybody that, you know, we've got to drive down the emissions. We've got to improve this. We've got to keep within the 2% or the 1.5%, depending on the number you're looking at. And, and we all accept that. But ESG is much bigger than that. And 
and the G is important, but G covers E and S as well. It's not just a silo of G. Um, and, you know, to have positive nature at uh, the mine sites, which the Natural History Museum in, in the UK on a, on a conference the other day was talking about positive nature. You know, that wasn't possible a few years ago. Uh, everybody looked at it from a negative point of view. Um, looking at the society side of things, I think Evie Hambro and Mark Bristow did a great uh, 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 interview at uh, PDAC earlier this year where they said E is binary, as you were just saying. The, you can never do enough on the, on the S. But there's so much positivity that has happened over the last 20 years, and there's so much more that we can do to improve the lives, uh, to mitigate risks, uh, et cetera, et cetera, with regard to the S as well. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but it, 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 I think it, this is, these are all interlinked. And, uh, and to look at them in silos of one, two, and three uh, probably is not the best way to go. And we've tried to get over that uh, through, through the way we've come about it. You're leading with technology at uh, Digby, uh, Jamie. Um, I, we always hear a lot about uh, blockchain uh, solutions. I think about uh, Lucara with it has. Uh, we've also seen a headline this week uh, that uh, talking about Nornickel, what it's doing. What do you think about uh, blockchain technologies as tied into ESG? I, I, I was, uh, I, 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 I just think it's it's absolutely fundamental to moving forward. Um, um, you know, I, there's a. And it's more on the product and more on the product chain and the supply chain that goes with it so that you can track it the whole way through. Um, so you can imagine the big BSG score from a minor point of view can ultimately go all the way through to, from when that's in production and then all the way through to uh, through the processing, uh, through the transport and everything. So uh, simply, simply put, Michael, I think it's critical to the uh, ongoing uh, development of this industry as we move out of being a kind of always a very old fashioned industry into a modern industry uh, and, and, and increasingly embracing technology. Uh, I think it's a major move forward and I fully support it. Paul. And, and I think it's coming because um, I, I think the producers see through things like that, uh, initiatives like that, the, the ability to obtain premium pricing for the product that is produced in exceptional way in terms of ESG. Uh, in, in the Fitch webinar about lithium this week, they mentioned that you know um, green premium will come to lithium for, for companies that are able to prove that. We've had it uh, talked about this in copper for a long time with the, the copper mark. Um, aluminium's talking about it as well. So there is a, um, a big desire for the sector to be able to achieve, achieve premium pricing for product that really scores highly on ESG aspects. Jamie, yeah, I, yeah, I just, I just comment. I mean, look at your Canadian iron ore uh, up in uh, up in Labrador. I mean, you know that is premium quality, which is getting premium pricing um, as the environmental impacts are or benefits or benefits or the impacts that they it gives uh, to reducing emissions, uh, whether it's in China or elsewhere. So I, I completely agree with Paul. I think you know you're going to get much more premium or, or differential pricing uh, within the commodity space which is frankly good news, uh, not bad news. And of course, you can have the demand pull on that as well because the, the buyers of EVs or EV batteries, whatever, they're going to want the, the cleanest, best, purest, whatever, most best produced product they can for, for their vehicles that carry their, their badges. 
Yeah. Uh, last question on this, uh, Jamie. Um, I heard an inter uh, previous interview did this, uh, but you were talking about, and let's talk about it from the junior side. Uh, but you're saying that there really is a big pot of money, you would say, or there's like, a, there's really an opportunity if you kind of get ESG right. Yeah, it goes back to uh, your earlier introduction, just on the on the Digby side of it. Look, this is, I think this is the greatest generational revaluation of a sector that I've ever seen. Uh, and the reason I say that is from the evidence that I'm beginning to hear. Now, we've got to, as an industry, come together and we've got to disclose and it's got to be credible and we've got to find confidence within a much wider pool. But that is now really an opportunity with which you could see on the horizon. Uh, it's something which is getting closer and closer. The dig BSG, uh, um uh, solution allows people to do that. It's easy. It's straightforward. It's relatively cost effective, and you can effectively do that. If I'm talking to a lot of these ESG and impact investing funds. Um, they all say they are. Well, I say all. Most of them are allowed to invest in the mining industry, but they choose not to. Most of them have never invested in the mining industry, but they all say to me, "Give us a means to credibly track ESG within these companies, and there's no reason why we cannot invest." The industry is a $1 trillion industry, I think, market cap industry. It's tiny with regards to, call it the S&P uh, uh, universe. Imagine if this money suddenly starts to trickle in through probably the mid caps and the big caps, but that creates then the M&A. M&A must not have friction in ESG because that is a risk. So we're effectively trying to address that to make sure that the producers have supported our frameworks to make sure that they're available for effective due diligence, but then it will flow through. You'll get better currency, better valuation, and 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 I think ultimately, as I said, I think it's one of the greatest uh, transformations of a of a, of an industry uh, in the generation that I've seen. Last to you, Paul, before we close the segment. Yes, um, and again, the Fitch uh, webinar mentioned this this kind of thing. Said that there's going to be a migration from traditional metrics such as cash cost and you know production. Towards more things like you know what's your C you know CO two per ton or whatever it is you're producing you know ESG metrics it can become much more important in how companies are valued uh, than than in the past. Let's turn to our number of the week, Jamie. Where you start with a guest, what's your number? It follows on from that last thing. It's thirty four. There are thirty four sectors which S and P look at on ENS. Mining is worst of all of them. We can only go higher. We can't go lower. Niels, what was your number? Um, my number is uh, 5.6. Um, that is the weekly, that's the percentage weekly loss uh, for gold this week. Uh, biggest loss since, uh, uh, the last time I checked, it was at uh, uh, 1772, just before uh, coming onto the show. So oh, an hour ago. Uh, so 5.6%. Uh, worst weekly decline since March of 2020, and that was when um, gold suffered. Like the, the, there was a whole uh, financial market meltdown because of the uh, of the uh, COVID 19 pandemic. Um, this time, uh, we're we're heading for the hills because we're worried about two rate hikes two years from now potentially. Paul, what's your number? And this isn't my number, but I think uh, trumping that will be uh, the copper's decline. It's, copper hit its lowest price in what, six or seven weeks, uh, and that's uh, just a rough calculation. That's more than 10% decline over that period of time. But um, my number this week is 1098, 1098. And that's the carrot size of a diamond uh, discovered in Botswana uh, by Anglo-American and De Beers. 
um, believed to be the third largest gem quality stone ever to be mined. My number is 13 months, 13 months. Uh, Zijing can pay off its $1.4 billion purchase of Nevson in just 13 months. Uh, uh, Zijing expects to produce 91,000 tons of copper and 2.5 tons of gold per year. Zijing can charge current metal prices, although I have to say when I run those numbers, those are midweek numbers. But if they can uh, generate uh, that uh, monthly, that would give it uh, enough time and enough revenue to pay off what it paid for Nevson, which, you know, looking back in 2018, that just seemed to be an eye-watting amount number for that. Uh, that's it for us. Uh, reach out to us. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael McRae and McRae is spelled with two C's. Neil says at Neil underscore C. Paul is at CGS 2021 gold. And Jamie, how would you like people to get a hold of you? It's uh, Jamie at thedigby.com. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe. Jamie, thank you very much for your time. Really loved it. Thanks so much indeed. This has been Keiko Roundtable on behalf of Paul Harris, Niels Christensen, and Jamie Strauss. Have a good weekend.